Welcome to the War Podcast. Welcome to the War Podcast. Today we have Jason Chris Hauk with us. Um, Jason and I go way back, and Jason, as far as, as I have known him, has been a very strong advocate for the Afghans. And then like a lot of the armchair analysts, Jason's actually been on the ground. He spent a good chunk of his life in Afghanistan, working with Afghans, living with Afghans, and making a lot of Afghan friends on the way too. Hello, Jason. How are things? Good. How are you doing today? Good, good. Tell us a bit about what are you up to these days? What are you doing? What are your um, hobbies? What are you busy with? Uh, still watching Afghanistan every day. Uh, still, people see me active on Twitter and uh, LinkedIn. So we, I put together the Global Friends of Afghanistan right after the uh, the uh, evacuation ended in, in August of 21. So I've been the director of that, and we've got a pretty good sized team of folks that help uh, talk about Afghanistan and make sure the press and the politicians are still talking about Afghanistan and looking at it and understanding what's going on. So. That keeps me pretty busy, but we got a great team that, that's pretty autonomous. Does uh, does what needs to be done. I do a lot of writing still, doing some painting. Uh, just finished. Uh, we're finishing up a song. I wrote a song uh, and uh, presented it to a buddy of mine who's a, a pretty good guitarist, and he put down the music. So we've got a song coming out. And the effort, the reason behind the song is, you know, a lot about what this podcast is about. A lot of veterans you know, uh, having trouble dealing with spending 20 years or you know, a part of 20 years working on Afghanistan, and then it's all gone. And what do you do? And so many people working to try to evacuate Afghans and resettle them. And it's been pretty tough on them and left all these folks in a, in a vulnerable place. Uh, and so we, we're going to put a song out to raise money for organizations around America. And uh, I think we've got some in the UK as well, and we'll probably branch out to Canada and other places. Uh, people that are Groups that are trying to get military families and military veterans and active duty as well uh, to deal with trauma and stress better. Uh, so it doesn't lead to suicide because that is such an epidemic uh, in our military here in America. Uh, our military community suffered with that. So we're just going to raise money with this song, give over half the profits away to organizations that can help with that. So that's kind of been my latest passion project. But Oh, that's good. That's always good. And it's one thing that we all know that, you know, we don't leave a man or a woman behind for that matter, which is which goes a long way um, about the uh, Afghans that you're helping. They uh, most exclusively come from military families and military backgrounds, or is that the general thing? Uh, which which Afghans? Oh, the helping? Afghans, the, the organizations that you're helping. with. Oh, oh with, yeah. So Global Friends of Afghanistan really focused on uh, kind of the higher level uh, information about what's happening in Afghanistan, not doing – we have some folks that are helping on resettlement here in the United States and in the U.K. and in Canada, uh, but that's kind of one-third of what we do. The majority of the work is focused on talking to Afghans around the world, talking to diplomats, getting them uh, to speak and getting Afghans to speak about what's going on and where they want to go in the future not trying to guide or push anybody in any direction, but just help Afghans have a voice and share their voices. Um, we had a conference last year. We're going to have another one this year 
where we just bring different veterans, military, diplomats, Afghans together to talk about where things are, where they want to go, uh, and just keep a steady drumbeat of Afghanistan out there in the larger uh, press and uh, diplomatic and political world, because it's so hard with the Ukraine just sucking all the air out of the room uh, to get anybody to pay attention to Afghanistan. So that's our really big focus. Uh, it's on a very broad level. But on individual level, we're helping. Um, we're partnered with a SEAL. We try to help a SEAL raise money to help different individuals in Afghanistan. And then we've got different crews that work on resettlement in various countries to at least take care of those who, who were able to escape the Taliban. No, that's a very noble cause, I'd say. Tell us about your the first day you landed in Afghanistan. I know you've got a pretty impressive resume. You've worked with senior leaders leading the entire military ops from an international perspective in Afghanistan. Tell us a bit about your early experiences, the day you landed, what changed, what did you learn, what did you like the most, did you hate anything? Yeah. Um, so I, my unit, I was in the 82nd Airborne Division uh, on September 11th, and my unit was initially uh, looked at as uh, possibly jumping into Bagram Airfield to secure it. Uh, my first assignment was Bagram Airfield uh, about a year later, and uh, I'm glad we did not jump in on that giant minefield surrounding that little airfield. Uh, that, that changed my perspective. But I first landed in Kandahar in September of 2002, uh, and uh, we flew in right in the, the evening. And so I, I let the uh, C-17 pilots know. I, I said, hey, man, can I get up in the cockpit and look at the airfield? Because I'm an engineer, we're going to be. I'm here to do airfield repair, so I got to kind of fly in over Afghanistan, see the country from above. My first trip in from the cockpit, and then land at Kandahar in the middle of a uh, a cool evening with a windstorm kicking up. So greeted with sand and high winds, and uh, then it. I think I finally got to Bagram. It was three in the morning, pitch black again, high winds, sand flying everywhere. Um, and ended up in a tent on on Bagram because there were no hard stands at that time. Everybody was living in tents or you know bombed out buildings and shelters. So uh, that was kind of my welcome to Afghanistan, right into the arms of my army buddies in the 82nd Airborne Division, um, and uh, a long journey for that year. But that's how it started. Now that's that was some journey. Um, how did you see the evolution of the Afghan society from the day you jumped? Uh, you know, jumped in onto the Kandahar airfield and then onto Bagram. The city, the city of Kabul was mostly, it went through a tremendous amount of transformation since from 2002 all the way to 2021. How did you Absolutely. find it? I, I was I was fascinated over the years to see those changes. I went into Afghanistan to help build the airfields and repair airfields and Stand, build a FOB Salerno. I was bringing in a team of engineers to finish that. When I got done with the airfield at FOB Salerno, I was actually transferred uh, to the embassy in Kabul in November to be General Eikenberry's aide-de-camp. And uh, he was building the army at the time and doing security sector reform. So we drove all over and walked all over Kabul for a year. Every, I mean, we went all over that city, and it was pretty safe at the time. There was IEDs popping up here and there, people throwing hand grenades and rockets, but it wasn't, you know, uh, what it was in its worst moments afterwards. I was amazed by it. When we first got there, you know, rolling blackouts, most of the time it, there was no power. 
it was winter, and so people were burning anything that would burn. So the air was thick with the burning tires. I was amazed to see old tires for sale everywhere because people were burning them to stay warm. And so, you know, you got that nice thick black uh, phlegm that was coming out of your body all the time. You know, just that the cobble cough uh, that stuck around. But it was you know, beat down. I'd, I'd been in a lot of countries, but I hadn't seen a city that had so large that had been that destroyed uh, throughout the 1990s and, and previous. So. Uh, that was astounding to watch over the years. I remember walking around, you know, just seeing open sewage on the side of the streets to, you know, these shopping malls and huge wedding venues and, you know, just power, you know, and neon lights and food and people uh, enjoying the parks and, you know, amusement parks and having a life again. And just uh, it was such a shock to see from when I first walked around the city uh, to, to what it was right before the Taliban came back in to see the videos and the movies. Um, you know, see the film industry, the music industry, all these things, television take off and, and normalize over those 20 years. Uh, so tough to see it uh, reversing now. Definitely, definitely. It was a very rapid, it, it all developed very rapidly and it went, you know, expanded quite rapidly. And it was just amazing to see our city, well, speaking of Kabul for now, developed so rapidly and almost every sense of the word. Uh, it's, it's, it's a memory to live with, I would say. Um, now, speaking of memories, what is the one memory that still you have from Afghanistan that hasn't faded a bit? Uh, I think uh, one that I, I can relive in my brain. Uh, we were, uh, when I was with Eikenberry on that first tour, and he was building the army, we had a lot of Green Berets. Uh, out at the uh, Kabul Military Training Center, uh, training the Army and running the basic training. And they had an accident uh, with uh, their mortar range. Some children had run onto the mortar range from Pulacharki Village nearby. They were picking up metal, as so many kids were just picking up scrap metal. Um, but they, you know, ignored the signs, ignored the warnings, and they happened to get caught in it. I think it was three or four kids uh, that were killed. But I remember... Uh, going to the village with General Eikenberry in my dress uniform, we had brought those over because we worked at the embassy, going to a village where the chaplain and the mullah and the fathers and us sat in a room no bigger than this room I'm in right now and just sat on the floor with our shoes off, drinking tea and watching those fathers lament because they were all boys that were lost, lament losing their sons and just going around the room. Um, you know, we were we were exchanging, you know, giving them some basically life insurance uh, money to cover it, even though it really wasn't the fault of the ANA uh, or the U.S. Army or the kids. It was just life. Um, you know, there's a range going on and kids run out into it. So it was a, it was an emotional experience. Sit in a room. My first real interactions, you know, listening to Afghan parents talk about their children and what life they envisioned for them and what they weren't going to have and and not be. They weren't angry. I mean, it was a it was the first dose of forgiveness that I saw, and I realized how forgiving Afghans were. Um, they weren't angry, and it stunned me that they just accepted, you know, ha having lived through the Russians, <laughs> the, the Civil War, uh, the U.S. invasion, they had seen war. So uh, to them, this was just another horrible, tragic mistake in uh, a long series of mistakes. But I for, remember that to this day to watch these Afghan fathers cry and think about their sons. And, you know, we were, it was just a room of 
older man crying uh, and drinking tea. And it was a, a memorable experience uh, over a tragedy. And those, we do take the chai, the green chai, with everything almost, with the good news and the bad news. Um, yeah. My next question is, Rather, it, it goes back to your uh, deployment in Afghanistan. How long did you stay in Afghanistan? How many provinces did you see? Which one's your favorite? Ah, good. Uh, that's a good one. So uh, I ended up doing 24 full months. The first tour was 12 months, focused on building the Afghan military and police and security sector, doing security sector reform, working with the Afghan government. So you know, lunches with President Karzai every couple of weeks with Fahim. Uh, with Berylai, with Basmola, just you know, hanging out with all these uh, these folks and trying to help them build the first government. We traveled to almost every province on that tour, um, every every weekend for a year, so almost 52 weekends. We were traveling to one of the other provinces, taking the Afghan government with us, Afghan military, taking our own people, uh, taking the uh, international community diplomats to see the country, to listen to the Afghan people and to help them figure out where they want to go and, and to hear where they wanted to be. So I, I think I hit about 20, 25 provinces the first tour. I went back in 2009 as General McChrystal's aide-de-camp uh, and then worked with General Lamb and Minister Stanikside on the APRP. Um, so that was another 12 months. And we, again, when I was with McChrystal's aide, we did the whole listening tour and we wandered the rest of the country. So I think just about every province I missed on the first tour, we traveled around on the second one. Uh, listening to Afghans and talking to them. So I got an earful on both tour from a lot of different places. I think Nuristan is one of the most beautiful provinces I've seen. Just we were up riding horses to get to where we were going in the middle of nowhere. I didn't even see a road. And I thought that was just a beautiful river by, up in the mountains, reminded me of my home in Vermont. Um, really enjoyed that. But I love Kabul as a city because I, I, I wandered the city so much on that first year and drove around it the second time uh, in 09 and 10, uh, usually just me and a couple of guys in unarmored vehicles driving around doing stuff. Uh, so I got to see quite a bit of it and enjoyed the restaurants and meeting Afghan people and, you know, having, having meals and a wonderful country. I, I, I miss it. I think about it every day. Yeah. Well, you and I are in the same, in the same boat on that one. Um, you mentioned a few of the Afghan politicians. Um, my next question is going to be a bit tricky. Um, I mean, those the names you mentioned are all people who are who have been accused of corruption on a massive scale. Did you ever come across cases of corruption, uh, cases where you were, you know, faced with? You know, I think Afghans did a great job of hiding it just enough. You knew it was happening. You could see the results of the corruption. But you never saw enough that would make you go, oh, I need to, you know, file a – and who would you file a complaint with? So, you know, I was working with, with Minister Ghani when he was running the, uh, the Ministry of Finance in 02 and 03. And, you know, we'd met all the ministers. They're all living well. Uh, you know, President Karzai is living well. <laughs> Fahim is definitely living well. Um, and, you know, go up north and Atta is living well. Uh, there's, there's money. Dostum enjoying his life. Shurzai down in Kandahar. You name it. I mean, everybody is clearly uh, finding ways to make money uh, that are not legal. But in those early days, who would you who would you say anything? You know, what would you do? Complain to the head of the U.N. 
and they would do nothing. I mean, it was it was the wild, wild west, as a lot of people like to term it. There was just people coming out of survival mode, a whole society shifting from survival mode to professionalizing into a government. There's going to be corruption. And you go back to any moment in history in America, as every state was formed, they were corrupt as hell. You know, the governor was God. And, and that's going to happen. So I, I, I didn't, you know, put on my white cowboy hat and say, hey, we need to arrest this guy. You just knew it was happening. But you also saw defense contractors and senators who were coming over who I'm sure were ensuring their states were getting pretty rich back in America, supporting the war effort. So uh, it wasn't our mandate at the beginning and maybe more on the second tour in 09 and 10 as we had an anti-corruption unit. But by then, Afghans had got really good at not showing it. You knew it was happening, but you couldn't see the evidence without, you know, a full-blown investigation. And that's just not something I was working on in my units and my organizations. But absolutely, it was happening, you know, at the big and small levels. You know, even, you know, we were up uh, up in the uh, Shamali Plains one day and uh, visiting a guest house with one of the militia members, trying to convince him to get his guys to join the ANA. And here comes an ANA colonel on a Saturday driving his ANA issued Jeep up the mountain to go have a picnic with his kids and his wife. And we're like, hey, <laughs> we're over here trying to tell the, the warlord to give his guys to professionalize and you're taking the car out for a spin. Like, that's the army Jeep. It's the big and little. Clearly, there was a lot. Asia as a continent is a pretty corrupt place. So is Chicago and New Orleans. Um, so I always try to give a little bit of uh, rationalization or some kind of context test to what we were seeing. If I was a little country that had an unprofessional government and they dumped billions and billions and billions of dollars on me every week, I would probably have some issues keeping track of where it was all going to. Um, and you know, Karzai was trying to bring the country together. I'm sure it took a lot of money to do that, to get different provinces and governors and warlords to play ball and, and start moving together. I mean, it's just... Uh, there was not many other mechanisms at that point to do anything. So lots of it. Not sure anybody could have done any better with it, but it was definitely an Achilles heel. It gave the enemies of the Republic a lot of ammunition. No, definitely. I think it, it's like one of those dams that break down. And once it breaks down, it's really hard to control what flows through. And it just, I think by, by the time in late uh, 2020, Everybody had given up on trying to control that. It just got to a point where everybody knew who was corrupt and everybody knew how the corruption was done. It just, I personally believe that a lot of us just gave up on it. We never took it seriously enough to, you know, follow through. And it's not a yeah, thing of... I mean, I, I still hear it when I'm in D.C. and in London, you know, but maybe not in Ottawa. You know, there's not many Canadians. They, tear, they care about that. But, you know, it just... Every country has this. You know who's corrupt. I mean, you're going to look in America. Some of these representatives who make, you know, two hundred fifty thousand a year are millionaires somehow. And you think, how are you doing that? If you work twenty four seven for your district back home, like where are you raking in millions of dollars? You're in the uh, government with a government salary. That shouldn't be possible. So that was my definite reaction after I went from the UN back in the MOI. That was my initial reaction to how do you survive on this salary here on a government yeah. salary it's it's a tough question um i have a, another 
interesting question for you. Now, you and I have known each other for a while, and now you and I interact on social media as well. And I see a lot of people um, sort of come after you or attack you or dismiss you as, you know, as a non-Afghan. You're not an Afghan, so you're not supposed to, you're not allowed to even to interfere in our um, affairs or do this or say that. What makes you going? What keeps you going? How do you keep still working for the same Afghans who tell you off, who dismiss you? Well, the great thing about Twitter is that block function. So if somebody just wants to attack me, you know, and, and for no reason or just because they have nothing better to do, you know, I, I try to sign. Because there are thousands of Afghans who talk to me over the years and continue to talk to me about what they want to do and how they wish the world could help. And I have built over the years a network and a voice and a way to shine a light on problems and get messages to diplomats and get messages to different military leaders to help try to move things where Afghans would like to see them go. So I know it's important. I love the country. I love the Afghan people. They saved my life more than one time. And so for me, it's it's really that simple. I I have the power to do something. So if I can help one Afghan, that's a win. If I can help more than that, then then that's all gravy. And I, I I learned long ago, especially as a writer. You know, I've got over 200 and something pieces of uh, works out there, you know, published in different organizations, probably 40 or 50 different places. The haters are going to find you, and they're going to come with their pitchforks and their uh, their torches and their axes, and that's what they do. So I've, I've definitely learned to ignore the haters, uh, and I get it. And some people have a valid point. And it's a fine line, I think, to, to talk about another country that you don't belong to, that's not your citizenship, but you, you love, that you care about. So you have to balance that. And I, I listen when Afghans that I respect say, hey, why did you say that? Or did you mean to say that? I listen. You know, if it's just somebody who's just being angry, you know, I get it. Let them, let them be angry. It's not going to slow me down from trying to help where I can. But I, I do think at this moment in, in history, um, you know, thing, it is up to Afghans. It is up to Afghans who live in Afghanistan and outside of Afghanistan to figure out the way forward and get there. All I can do is try to help find people that can help. Um, but there's no, you know, I always tell people there's, there's no white knight that's going to come running in, you know, and and save Afghanistan. It's just, it's not. The world is tired of, of trying to help Afghans. It's, they're totally waiting for Afghans to help themselves. So that's where they are. If I can help in any way, I do. Many days I just retweet other things that Afghans are saying because I don't want it to be my words because maybe I don't have an opinion or I shouldn't. Uh, but it's hard not to say something when you know uh, there's, there's something that should be said. But that actually gives me a nice segue into my next question is considering how in how Afghanistan is right now with the Taliban, with everything, and the world not paying attention to Afghanistan, the women not being able to work, gain education, go to schools and everything. And for some people, it's a belief that it's a vicious cycle that keeps repeating itself. It's the same group of extremists coming down, ruining and destroying everything, and then it just keeps going round and round. What do you see as uh, one thing that could just put a stop to that vicious cycle? The one thing that would break the chains and start something that's not like what's been in 
you know, what it has been in the past 50 years. Yeah, I, one big thing and one that I've looked at is one of those roots of the problem. It's because Pakistan is pretty uh, paranoid in their foreign policy. And Afghanistan as a nation, successive governments has never made Pakistan feel less paranoid. You know, they, they've always been at odds with each other and make each other, you know, even more paranoid and angry. Um, I think in the long term, it's Pakistan coming to realize that putting a terrorist organization in Kabul is not in their interests. You know, and most, I think that's the long term solution. When Pakistan realizes as a country that their foreign policy should not involve helping terrorists take over extremists, take over neighboring countries, that's a bad recipe as Pakistan's feeling now with the, the uh, Pakistani Taliban you know, starting to kick up their uh, campaign again. Uh, I think that's probably the, the biggest piece that would make a, sh a fast change. If Afghans weren't being manipulated by a neighboring country that's much larger and has a much uh, more robust intelligence and military capability and lots of money from China and um, other countries, unfortunately, that are even in NATO, who <laughs> send Pakistan money to manipulate Afghanistan, I think that's the biggest shift. The Afghans have got a lot of work to do, but if they were left unmolested by Pakistani foreign policy, I think that would give them the breathing room to do it. And I saw that in those first couple of years that I was in Afghanistan. Pakistan wasn't sure what they were going to do yet. They were telling us they weren't quite sure. Now, they secretly were already helping protect the Taliban leadership, al-Qaeda, the Haqqani gang, you know, building them back up again. But they weren't quite sure if they were going to make that a long-term investment and try to throw out the, the Republic and force NATO to leave. I think that decision came a little bit later as they saw NATO wanted to help Afghanistan, but really didn't want to be there and didn't want to help too much. Uh, and then the Afghans were having such trouble uniting and, uh, you know, sorting out how they would run the country and, and not be dependent, but to be in the lead on things. Uh, so I think that gave Pakistan the idea, that, you know what, if we crank up this insurgency again, We'll run off NATO, and the Republic won't be able to stand. I mean, we'll outgun them, we'll outspend them, we'll we'll bribe more people. You know, they had a plan. It was a great unconventional warfare campaign that they pulled on NATO and the Republic. So I think changing that calculus in Pakistan is important. It's a tough one, and that's going to take a lot of compromise from Afghans and from Pakistanis. And I don't know if they're even anywhere close to that conversation. I do meet people, Afghans, a lot of them, who have the, same, the belief that before even Pakistan getting involved and doing whatever they have done in the past decades and so, it's always been to Afghans. It's always been up to Afghans to do right by their country, by their nation, and to actually take responsibility. I mean, from one perspective, I do agree with them that Pakistan, in the end of the day, even if it's doing something bad like supporting terrorism, like training terrorists and having their camps and hosting them and feeding them and equipping them, everything. None of that would have mattered if Afghans hadn't sold out, basically. If Afghans themselves hadn't allowed this. So Yeah, if, if Afghans had sealed the border instead of a bunch of, you know, mostly American forces trying to, if Afghans and tribal leaders and everybody had just said no. You guys stay over there in Pakistan. You're not welcome back uh, and just shut down all their ability to infiltrate the country. That had been a big shift. I mean, absolutely.
No, I I agree. I think it, in my personal opinion too, it's Afghans first who should have done the thing. We should have taken the initiative and actually been, you know, we should have actually taken their national sovereignty seriously. But that's a, that's me. I'm an Afghan. I might be biased, so we're not going to go there. <laughs> Speaking of the uh, American military, what do you wish more of the American military would do or say about Afghanistan right now? Yeah, there's a, a large portion of veterans who don't have a, a soapbox to stand on, uh, but do feel that you know the the U.S. government made a decision to abandon Afghans. Uh, and all their Afghan partners that they fought with over the years. Some units went back to the same province over and over and worked with the same Afghan units. Like they really were closer to them than some of their own family back here. So I think a lot of veterans want to explain to the world that it, it, it wasn't us. You know, if if it was up to us, we would have kept a Korea-like uh, relationship going where we'd had some training centers and continue to help the ANDSF as long as it took. Yeah. All right. So my next question in line with the previous one would be, now I understand it's a lot of American vets have been standing by their Afghan friends. They've been helping them with food, with financial support, with transportation, with working on their visas, paying their humanitarian parole uh, applications. Basically outstanding work there. My question that I want to pose to you at this point is, it's not really the responsibility of the American government, the American vets, or the American military community to protect Afghans to protect the land, to protect the sovereignty, to protect their rights to education, to basically their basic rights. What do you think about that? No, I agree. In the end, it was up to the ANDSF to, to professionalize and hold the country and create that sovereignty and for all the elected leaders to do what needed to be done to sustain it uh, and to reach over the border and get Islamabad to change their ways and not be bought off by Islamabad. But, uh, you know, they're it was up to Afghans, absolutely. I mean, there was, I was there at the beginning. We told Afghans, it's going to be up to you. We're not going to stay long, but we're going to stay as long as we need to, as long as we're able to. Uh, over the years, I think Afghans forgot that message and just assumed NATO was always going to be there as big brother to help out. And the EU was going to keep pumping, you know, money in there. But in 2020, I spoke to the UN uh, donor group. When they met, um, President Ghani was there holding a meeting in uh, Geneva, and we spoke to them about the future. I said, look, you can give humanitarian aid all you want. If you don't give security support and security aid and keep the ANDSF strong, the humanitarian aid won't matter because they're not going to be able to hold if the world stops supporting them. And that, unfortunately, absolutely came true as the world cut off all of their uh, security promises to the Afghan Republic and the Afghan people, you know, it wasn't ready. It was a 19-year-old security force. I think of a 19-year-old human being. A 19-year-old human being isn't ready for the world these days. They still need their mom and dad and their family and their friends uh, and their coworkers. I mean, they don't do it alone. Uh, and I think it was just too soon. 
And that left the Afghans in a tough spot. They weren't mature enough to do it on their own. And uh, their enemy was more determined. And Pakistan understood that. And they put everything they could behind the enemies of Afghanistan. Understandably so. Do you, do you think uh, the Afghan national security, the Afghanistan National Defense and Security Forces, the 19-year-old was abandoned by the international community? I mean, you and I were in the military. We knew how things work. We knew that fighting a war is not just about putting on a uniform and running into the battlefield anymore. It's not that day and age anymore. Do you think that there was the intention by the international community to actually enable the NDSF to be a standalone independent force? I think that was the plan. That was the effort. But I think they assumed that all along there would always be the ability to have civilian or contractor support for the tough things, you know, running an air force. It takes 50 years to get good at running an air force. I, I think most planners that looked at helping the ANDSF said, there are certain parts of this, logistics, maintenance, intelligence, that are just hard to do. And the Afghans are gonna need that support for years, for decades, just like South Korea needs it today still. South Korea would be gone tomorrow if all the military and security support left. Without a doubt, they, their capital's right by the border. They're done. And as soon as the war starts, it's going to be a chaotic event. And if and the entire world just wiped their hands of it and said, it's up to you to handle it, we've helped you long enough, South Korea would be gone. They couldn't handle it. They can't handle the modern war that there is to face today because they, have, they are dependent on that UN-backed you know, coalition, which is smaller than the, uh, the NATO-UN coalition that was in Afghanistan. But I, I don't think it was their intention to leave them hobbled in a way. I think they just realized that modern warfare is hard to do, and it would take years of support you know, with special operations forces, with counterterrorism forces, with logistics, maintenance, to continue to keep that going. When it was all ripped away immediately, uh, you know, we all just looked at each other and said, well, that's it. And they're, they're 19 years old. You can't do that. Modern war cannot be fought by a military that young. You know, they needed three generations of leadership to learn how to run the military, especially the Air Force and air support, uh, which is critical to logistics in Afghanistan. So we ripped off the training wheels and then, you know, slashed the bike tires on the way out. And that was it. There was no way. Um, that was the tough part. Yeah, I, uh, I'd say the vision was a noble vision, but the strategy and the approach lacked a lot of fine-tuning and basically a lot of principles. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's. I think you and I are on the same page with that one. Um, my next question, and I'm sort of thinking that it's one of the questions that I wish we should keep asking all of ourselves. What do you think Afghanistan changed for you the most? Mm. Uh, it definitely made me focus more on another country instead of my own. I don't think I, there's no other country in the world that I look at and study and focus on and think about more often, including America, than Afghanistan. You know, for 20 years, this is 03, for 21 years, that's all I've thought about just about every day. That's what I write about. It's what I think about. That's what I talk to people about. People talk to me about. Um, I know more about Afghanistan at this point than modern America. You know, I, I, 
you ask me some of the same questions about what's going on in in my own country, my own military, my own society, I probably wouldn't know the answers um, as well because I just don't. I don't even have the. I don't watch the news in America. I don't watch local or national news. I, I read some stories on. Uh, in print newspapers and, you know, from journals and things. So, but Afghanistan, I, I follow everything, everything I can get my hands on in, in any language I can. And I talk to Afghans constantly. And I, I think that's, that's probably the biggest, I mean, I, it's just become a focus, uh, uh, more of a focus than my own nation and understanding a country. As a closing remark, what do you see the way forward? What do you see the way forward for all these Afghan diaspora uh, that are now well, the new diaspora, so to speak. What yeah. do you see the way forward for that? What is the way that we could, like I said, it's probably a repeat of my question from earlier, but to break that chain and to take ownership of their own future and their country? I think it's a long-term project, but I think it is uh, building some kind of global Afghan coalition of voices, you know, some kind of governing council or body that talks about the future where they want to be, that includes enough different voices that you come up with a better model for the future. So when this terrorist organization finally, you know, angers enough Afghans, <laughs> they get thrown out of a few provinces. Uh, you, you have somebody who has the capability uh, to come in and start governing, or at least, you know, if they collapse, you know, and I anticipate it probably could, some kind of violent mess that breaks out and across the country. You know, there's there are Afghans who've thought about what the future might look like and how to govern, and leaders have kind of bubbled up from a younger generation that are looking to the future um, and are able to just talk about where they want to be and have that vision and make it happen. And I think it's the clock is ticking, just like the old diaspora, the, the other generation uh, from the 80s and 90s. They're very assimilated in their countries. I don't see them ever moving back full time to Afghanistan, no matter what. Like they're assimilated. Now you've got the clock ticking on this big group, you know, 150, 200,000 people. I'm not sure what the numbers are, but they're scattered around the globe. And there's only a certain amount of time before they're assimilated to wherever they are. And they become a citizen of that country who misses Afghanistan, but it's not going back. So I think the clock is ticking to organize Afghans, figure out where they might want to go and lay out a roadmap and create some kind of body that diplomats and national leaders can talk to about their future. So they're not stuck, you know, otherwise they're only stuck talking to the Taliban and Haqqani terror group. If that's all you're giving them is an option of people to talk to instead of, you know, unless they're individually going around to Afghan houses around the world and talking to Afghans, there needs to be some body, some organization, rent out one of the old embassies and set up shop and put up the flag and, and have a place where Afghans can come together and sort out the future. Um, that the Taliban did it beautifully against the Republic. You know, they ended up with a, a headquarters in Doha, you know, sitting. I was just about to say that. That, that sounds like a... Reverse it. Yeah. <laughs> Reverse the, the play. Pakistan is actually afraid of that. You know, when I talk to ISI, they're, they're worried that Afghans will organize and use the playbook against them and run their own unconventional warfare campaign uh, that weakens the Taliban regime over time. Uh, it's an option. It's not an expensive option to sit and talk and rent out a space and have a headquarters and make a place for diplomats to come by. That's actually a pretty inexpensive and bloodless way to, uh, you know, look at the future and plot towards it. That sounds like a good idea that a lot of people would be 
looking at going for, forward. But um, now this has been enlightening, Jason. Thank you so much for being with the War Podcast. Would love to have you soon again for more talks, but thank you for today. Thanks for having me. Always an honor and great to talk to you again. It's been too long.